out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 show, always bringing you the finest in indie pop. And as you know, we do love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of David Knight. Yes, one-time collaborator with Danielle Dax and still making music. This is the interview. And after several minutes of casual chat, we get down to that very important question that I just threw at him. And he answered with great confidence. How did it all begin? David, it's over to you to say this interview. What happened? I mean, it started in 1979, really, as far as the biz is concerned. Um, is the sound is the sound okay? By the way, David? yeah, it does yeah. sound okay. If it does, I if it does go a bit weird, I'll just phone you back on Skype because I think yeah, just in case there's something with the connection. But anyway, yes, yeah, the same okay. time. Okay, yeah. So what happened was um, I'd got a an old analog synth of VCS three. Um, that I was sitting at home in my bedroom just uh, doing, you know, Tangerine Dreamlight noodlings with. And a friend of mine worked in the Beggar's Banquet record shop in Earl's Court. Saturday job. He was still at school at the time. And um, he just, you know, I used to do cassettes at home, not for distribution or anything or cassette swapping or anything. He just, I just did cassettes. And he took the tape in to work and was playing it in the shop. And... Um, he was working with Peter Kent and Divo Watts Russell, who were the managers of the shop at the time. And uh, they, they heard it and said, what's this? And um, Brad said, oh, it's, it's my mate Dave, um, stuff he does at home. And they said, well, we're thinking of starting up a label. So tell him if he wants to do a cover of, an elect- of a glam rock song in an electronic style like the Human League did with Gary Glitter, um, we'll put it out as a single. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So um, uh, I, I I did a version of Children of the Revolution at home, T Rex, because it's nice. It's only about two notes, and um, they they said, "Yep, yeah, finally we'll put it out." And so they stuck me in a studio, which was called Electrophon, which was a studio, electronic studio, in Covent Garden, which had been set up by a few members of the. Um, Radiophonic Workshop. I think they spent their pensions or cashed their pensions in and bought this place. And it was uh, Brian Hodgkins and um, Delia Derbyshire and a couple of others, I think. And um, so they sent me there to the studio to do that. And the chap there called John Lewis, he he uh, produced it. I think he produced uh, pop music by N. Right. I know that. I know it was recorded there. Um, and um, so we did it. I, I mean, I'm no singer and obviously it needed vocals. And um, on the version I'd done at home, you know, I, I just sang over the top of it. And um, I'd wanted to do um, vocoder, vocoded vocals, but they said, no, that would sound too much like Kraftwerk, <laughs> so, which, which in 1979 is quite, quite funny, really. How many people sound like Kraftwerk now, you know, or have done in the intervening years? And um, so I just sang it, you know, bare and um, came up with another piece, which was the A-side track called Junction One. Yes. Um, and um, so before that was in that was in late 79, it was recorded and they set up a gig in um uh, well, it was Mayhem Studios, which was Toya's place. It's where she lived in Battersea, uh, just opposite Queenstown Road Railway Station. And they set up a gig there. And it was a, a bit of a, it was really the beginning of that whole blitz and uh, that club culture thing. A lot of those people started out at the Mayhem Studios. Um, I think Spandau Ballet did their first gig there or something like that, or an early gig. And um, it was just a warehouse, great place. But um, so I was playing supporting Vice Versa, who went on to become ABC. And it was the first gig I'd ever played. And I was 
I was on VCS3. Uh, my friend from school, Steve Player, on guitar. Uh, my brother, Pete, who was about 14 at the time, was operating a couple of cassette decks, you know, with rhythms and um, voices and stuff to play in onto it. And um, so it was, it was quite nerve-wracking, really, because first gig and um, in the audience was, like, Susie and um, I think Kenny Morris, a couple of other members of the Banshees. I think Gary Newman was there and Adam Ant. So um, it was really in at the deep end, Baptism of Fire. I think uh, one of the mates went up to Susie afterwards and said to her, what did you think of it? And she said, oh, sounds too much like Robin Gristle. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so as well as um, being an early copier of Kraftwerk, I was probably one of the first Robin Gristle um, uh, yeah. sound-alikes as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, so that was in August 79 and uh, the single came out I think it was the first week of January 1980 they thought you know first beginning of the year um the new label and they released four singles and the label was called Axis and um there was my single was um number one um in the, in the catalog and they also had Bauhaus with dark entries and a band called Bears with a Z and a band called Shocks with an X, um, mm. four singles. And um, what happened, I think my my friend Brad was in the shop um, the day that Ivo and uh, Pete got this um, lawyer's letter from a lawyer representing a label called Axis, which their label was called, uh, say, you know, cease and desist. Um, so they basically had to, you know, com- print anymore on that label so they there on the spot they came up with the name 4AD um, so my single was kind of the first release on 4AD but it wasn't 4AD at the time no yeah I think the only thing they carried over from those first four releases obviously was Bauhaus um, yeah yeah that's um, right so when you were just kind of roughly going a little bit further back because I was yeah. sort of just in your growing you know those mm. teen, the early teen years. Because I'm in my mid fifties yeah. now, and sort of, yeah. up, sort of, I suppose, listen to my mum would have been playing radio too, as she pottering yeah. around in the house and kitchen and listening to the work of Burt Backrack and all those stuff that sort of people like mm. Jimmy Young used to play on a afternoon when he used to have his recipe spot. And then sort of the the early seventies was all that kind of getting excited by the sight of glam. And then yeah, I guess I can my first singles David Bowie's um, Space Oddity. So what was what were your kind of early... Yes, because what happened was that mm. I, my brother, who's seven years older than me, he yeah. was at that generation who loved his prog rock. You know, that was just the yes. thing that people yeah. did. So he was, he'd introduced me in a bizarre way to the world that was kind of Yes and Genesis yeah. and Wishbone Ash and Barclay James Harvest. And he had that album by Tangerine Dream, Ricochet. Phaedra, yeah. Oh, Ricochet, yeah. Ricochet, yeah. that was his favourite. And yeah. so it was, uh, it was all... Yeah, so I was kind of sneaking into his room when he wasn't there, listening to these records, being kind of amazed with the, the King Arthur one and the journey to the oh, yeah. centre of the earth and all those. You know, I found it kind of because I was just a bit obsessed about it, so I didn't really, mm. didn't, um, yeah, I don't even know if it had a term then particularly. You know, prop no, prop. and no. so so it was only when I was a bit older that I started to sort of develop an, an interest in other sort of sounds. And I suppose I was a bit of an indie kid um, during the eighties. I mean, there was there was some sort of something must have been happening in the late seventies, but I still felt quite young. Sort of punk didn't didn't happen for me at all. So I, did, yeah. I was just wondering what your sort of early years were. My trajectory. Your trajectory. <laughs> uh, well, I, I I mean, obviously, during the sixties when I was um, yeah a youngster, um, it was um, well, what's it? You know, obviously just you know singing singing she loves you yeah yeah in the school playground type thing you know but um there was there was no real interest in you know going out and buying records or anything like that and i i guess the first the first time i really got started getting interested in music was like some of the early scar stuff like i really remember strongly um uh, desmond decker the israelites that really clicked which would have been about 1969 um when i'd have been about 10 and um, then on that, yeah, there was only Scar. I remember going around shop after shop trying to get a copy of The Liquidator by Harry J and the All-Stars 
um, which is an instrument, a scar instrumental. But, um, you know, didn't really realise that you can just go into a ready record shop and buy any record you wanted at the time. You know, they had a short life in record shops and rules, obviously. Yeah. Um, uh, but um, the first real thing that really caught me, I think, would have been T-Rex about, you know, in 71, get it mm. on and hot love and what have you. And the first album I bought was Electric Warrior by T-Rex. And um, then what you do, obviously, is you start going backwards and buying, you know, bands' previous releases. So I ended up getting, yeah, and you usually go for the cheaper ones as well because, obviously, this is all pocket money purchases. Yes. So, yeah, so you start going back and, of course, immediately you, you buy the Tyrannosaurus Rex stuff, which is a really quite odd idiosyncratic sort of folky hippie stuff. Well, yes, the yeah. the poetry was quite extraordinary, wasn't it? There, yes. There was one particular album that I really wanted to like, genuinely, mm. but I probably didn't, which was that one about the when my people were fair and had stars in their hair. And it was yeah. kind of, yeah. it's kind of interesting, but, it, I, you know, it's a bit like um, the Incredible String Band, you know, or, yeah. or the Track Mask Replica. It's like, I don't genuinely sit at home, listen to it you know, <laughs> on my yeah. own, really turned up, whereas, yeah. you know... It, when I was younger, trying to impress friends, I would probably go and put it on and say, "Yeah, this is my favorite album of all time." But... Yeah, well, I think I think at the time, you know, you, these people are coming from a completely different world to one you know, so you really want to try and get involved and dig into it and think, "Wow, you know, this amazing magical world these people live in," and, and the lyrics, you know, so are you know, so so obscure, and you think there must be some hidden meanings in all this. Yeah. So it's, it's a sort of like um, a starstruck. 12-year-old or 13-year-old, you know, that's what you do. But um, so from obviously from T-Rex, then it was Roxy Music, love Roxy Music, and still do. Yes. So when did you find or start to discover people like Delia Derbyshire? That well, that would have been, that would have been probably in the 70s, in the 70s, started... Delving into um, experimental music, you know, electronic stuff. What yes. Um, but I'd say, you know, from, from the T-Rex and, you know, it moved into sort of like, you know, Bowie and um, Alice Cooper, uh, what have you. But at the same time, you had very early on, you had Virgin putting out the Faust tapes for the price of a single. And, you know, only been able to really afford singles most of the time. I went out and bought the Faust tapes and, you know, which was, you know, pure out and out kraut rock and um, loved it really. And, you know, the funny thing is, is it was all part of Roxbridge tapestry. <laughs> you know, it was, um, it, I didn't put a delineation between, oh, Alice Cooper and the Faust tapes. They were all just people doing stuff. Yes. You know, and, um, and, um so very early on, I heard this stuff that still is about as out there as most bands will ever get uh, with, with Faust. Um, yeah. And um, so were you sort of able to sort of get the equipment to make this sound? Because now it's kind of all pretty easy. But then, because actually I come from a village called Metfield in the depths of Suffolk. And on mm. the border, Fresenfield, there was a guy who was famous for doing the, the Doctor Who music. And I got oh, right. I can't remember his name now, but, you know, he he sort of had some connection and lived in Australia mm. as well. But he always comes up in those kind of influential... Oh, yeah. Um, he, um, you know. Well, there was... Um, I'm, I'm not... I'm not a doc, funnily enough, a lot of my friends will kill me for saying this, but I'm not a big Doctor Who fan. Uh, but, I mean, there was... Um, Tristram Carey. That's um, the one. Yeah. <laughs> um, Tristram, Tristram he was Carey. the man who lived in the depths of sort of Suffolk. And, uh, yeah. And people, well, you know, because we used to go, the school bus went past there and it was like, oh, yes, he's the man who, I never saw him, but, yeah. you, you know, you'd point at this kind of shack down the bottom of a, yeah. a country drive and was a little bit, like, mystified by the whole thing. Well, the funny thing is, is Tristram Carey was involved in developing the VCS3 synthesizer. Um, at EMS, the company called Electronic Music Studios, who were based in Putney, and uh, which was just down the road from me because I lived in, um, well, Welton, Chelsea, Battersea, Fulham areas. And um, I'd always make my dad stop as we drove through Putney to, so I could just gaze at this VCS3 sitting in the window. This yes. would have been in about the mid-70s, I guess. And, of course, all that stuff was 
you know, you'd never be able to afford that unless you had a job. <laughs> and um, I was still at school. But we we had a school band. Um, it wasn't the official school band. Um, they could all play their instruments properly. But our, our one was, you know, just me and friends at school. And um, I'd got a toy, I think, called a sketcher tune, which was where you drew graphite patterns on paper and moved a pencil along it that had a contact at the back that played a simple little oscillator so i'd be playing that that was my instrument um so you know try being the eno of the band yes and, what, about, uh, what about the stylophone that was kind of well the stylophone funny enough I, eventually i got hold of um the debrick 350s which was the deluxe stylophone it had two styli and um, it had a kind of magic eye wire on it and different sounds so that was as close to a synth as you could get really um with my money anyway yeah um uh pay, saved up for a phase pedal and that sort of thing but that was it and tape recorders of course i had a couple of old reel-to-reel tape recorders that you could get for about a fiver at the time and used to record things like clanging the fire grill and slowing it down four times and playing it backwards and stuff like that over the top of the band i was in yeah so and so- um, so on the on my sort of excitement of the the sort of eighties indie world, which obviously yep. you're sort of sort of on on the sort of cusp mm. of, because I sort of I suppose I put indie down between the years of eighty three to eighty seven, which was kind of basically the years of the Smiths, and the, yeah. and the, and at the same time a lot of bands that I've interviewed, you know, during that early eighties period, you know, we mm. were we were sort of getting um, <clears throat> animated by the the rise that was Margaret Thatcher, but there was also a huge amount of unemployment. And so a lot of young people, or not just young, but, you know, were going unemployed or were mm-hmm. unemployed. And at the time, it didn't seem to have that much huge, you know, negative status. It was almost like, oh, yes, you do a bit of unemployment for a year mm. or two. And and that and there was like things like the Job Seekers Allowance or the Enterprise Allowance, which gave quite a lot of people mm. up into that opportunity to almost have grant indirectly to to sort of yeah. play and then they would get a single send it to john peel john peel if he gave it a spin you know got a session then the album you know and things generally yeah. did have a little bit of a almost a career but with no money yes <laughs> yeah funny enough you should say this actually because um i remember i mean it's, it's skipping a bit but just to you know come back to that was that um I was just uh, talking to a friend yesterday about guitar pedals. He was talking about a particular fuzz pedal that's, I don't know, about 120 quid or something. Um, and I, I was saying about trying out. And I just remembered that back in, I don't know, maybe about 87, 88, Danielle and I went to tour in Japan. That And um, I remember... I think I was. I think normally I I did the sound, um, but the um, I, the guitarist dropped out, so I I played guitar, and I remember having to get a fuzz pedal, and thinking uh, going to the music shop, and they had one for nineteen pounds, this really cheap um, fuzz pedal, nineteen quid, and it was rubbish. It was plastic, and if if you switched it on, the clean guitar sound once you engaged the fuzz. The, the fuzz sound would be half the volume of the clean sound, which is not what you want. And, you know, <laughs> it was rubbish. And I was thinking, I was, I was just thinking, you know, here we are, you know, to, we were touring Japan, you know, and all I could afford was a £19 fuzz pedal. And now you've got kids playing Les Pauls and Strats because half the time it's because their dads want them, really, but they um, buy them for the kids. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, how did, so how did people like, we've got a fuzz box or we've got to use it, get on mm. then? Because they obviously, were, they were from Birmingham and they yeah. probably didn't, they had an extraordinary lack of probably money at that time as well. Yeah. But they I've did. No, I've no idea. And you know, that's probably the way that bands actually came up sounding quite different was because they could only pull really cheap rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> they certainly did. Uh, you know, which, which probably now is highly collectible as well. That's the other funny thing. Yes, because you did. I mean, I suppose, again, it was that thing that you had those bands like Bog Shed, Big Flame, and, Mm. um, you know, those very awkward sort of bands. And sort of most of the people who were in them, you know, I I sort of asked them about the sound. It's like, well, 
we made that sound because actually we couldn't sound, you know, through the lack of kind of skill and yeah. talent, that was all we could do. We couldn't do cover versions because we didn't yeah. that sort of we didn't have that ability. So we had to sort of make something quite odd and scratchy. And at the same time, you know, we're living in squats in Manchester or Leeds, etc. And so, yeah. It kind of, you know, and we were unemployed, so we had a couple of years doing that. And then, you know, that little moment where John Peel says, oh, here you go, have a have a bit more exposure. And, and us indie kids going, hmm, that's interesting. Stump. You know, I think Stump yes. did have a bit, but but Big Flame, you know, definitely had a, a limited lifespan because of, you know, lack of probably <laughs> musical talent. But, you know, <laughs> I mean, but actually, no, but he also said that, you know, because I interviewed a member of, yeah. you know, he's, he's sort of, I think after a period of being in the band, I thought this is good. I now need to go and get a real job. So um, that kind of does happen. So then, yeah. then sort of as, as the eighties progressed, and then yeah. we went for that post punk to the, mm. the kind of more indie scene, which is kind of simplistic because you had all the mainstream stuff and everybody, a lot of the mm. you know top of the pops. When you watch it now from the eighties, is is quite. Um, it's a bit freaky. It's just like a bad dream, isn't it? But you know the, the kind of presenters and the sort of the happy, clappy crowd, and yes, it's um, scary as hell. And you had the Tre Trevor Horn production sound, which definitely wasn't indie at all, was it? So, no. how did you all next after your solo moment? What yeah. happened next? Well, um, uh, from doing the stuff that that single, um, Peter Kent, um, who was running the label with Ivo. Uh, approached me and he said, oh, "We've got this other band who have, um, you know, uh, uh, we're thinking of signing, and um, they need a drum machine. Uh, they're doing a single, and they need a drum machine. And I had a drum machine because around about 1979, I'd actually got a job locally. So you know, that's how I could afford the VCS3. Um, uh, so." Um, I had the drum machine, so I went to the rehearsals with them, and we, we clicked, and they were called Five or Six, and they were on, uh, eventually they signed with Cherry Red. So we did a single, um, and they um, recorded, I think Kevin Coyne produced it, and um, that was recorded in Fulham, and it was a track called Another Reason. And so I was just operating the drum machine. In those days, you know, you needed an operator for a drum machine. <laughs> um, and so then I went on to join them playing synth and uh, drum machine, stuff like that. And um, through five or six, um, Ash, who ended up playing with five or six, he was in Kingston. He, Ashley Wales, he um, worked in, funnily enough, yet again, Beggar's Banquet Record Shop in Kingston. And um, Carl Blake from the Lemon Kittens, um, was working in Kingston at the time, but he used to go into Beggar's Banquet in his lunch breaks and got chatting to Ash. And um, they formed Shockity Peters. Um, so I, you know, Ash was telling me about all this. You know, I didn't quite know Carl at the time. But then, funnily enough, there was a strike, a train strike, and Carl got asked to go to his nearest office, which was where I worked in Battersea. And so I go into work one morning with a hangover, as usual, and um, there's Carl Blake from the Lemon Kittens sitting at the table next to me, um, which is quite odd. Cause, yeah. you know, I, I, um, and so we got chatting. He came over to my only live around the corner. So I, we, I'd go home at lunchtime and he came around and play tapes and stuff like that. And um, eventually I, five or six, um, stopped and I joined Shockity Peters. Um, yeah, so and then from Shock Eddie Peters, obviously, Carl, you know, uh, had been working with Danielle, knew Danielle, so um, I introduced me to Danielle Dax, and um, we hit it off and we started recording and writing together, yes. And, and, and was that yeah. when that was called Lemon Kittens at that stage? Um, no, Daniel, uh, Daniel and Carl were the Lemon Kittens, and um, I think. Oh, Kyle, Kyle, <laughs> bite my head off for this. But I think they stopped around 82. Um, their last album, The Big Dentist, was released around about then. Um, but uh, so Daniel had decided to start a solo um, career. And um, she was looking for a, a band. And that's where I came along and uh, started working with her. 
Right. And this yeah. was about 84 time. No. Yeah, actually, well, I, I met, met her and Carl about 83. Right. And, oh, 82, 82, May 1982, I think it was. Yeah. And, um, and they're, but we've just been friends, you know, for the rest of 82, 83, you know, she was recording her Popeyes album at the time, uh, which was done completely on her own. Um, and um, so, you know, go around and visit, see how she was getting on with it, listen to tracks and stuff. Yeah. And um, then that Popeyes came out and I started working with her. Well, the first stuff that came out from us working together was Jesus Egg, which would Jesus Egg, the wet mini album, which was about 84, I think. Yeah. 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 So when the three of you got together, because mm. you've obviously by then had sort of um, had got quite a good CV between you. Did it, mm. Did you feel quite a spark between between each member that you thought, oh, this is quite interesting? Because you're not uh, 16 and not, you know, or 18. Yeah. In your uh, first band, you'd been together. You'd done yeah. quite a lot of different stuff. And actually yes. by then yeah. you'd even mastered the drum machine, which I think the Farmer's <laughs> Boys had tried to use as well for a while. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. The good old Farmer's Boys. They were kind of local <laughs> to this area. So, yeah, yeah. so I was just thinking that, that um, you'd released quite a few things and been in the studio and played live between you. Yes, yes. I mean... Uh, you know, me and Carl had, I mean, I'd done stuff with, um, you know, my single, um, which was a bit of a one-off really, but then five or six, you know, we'd been touring Europe quite a lot and um, putting stuff out. Uh, Shock Eddie Peters. Um, funny thing is, really, it all started coming out about the same time because I was working with Carl and Shock Eddie Peters and with Danielle, Danielle, you know, and um, eventually what happened was, it got to the stage where I couldn't be doing both because um, it's around about the mid eighties because Danielle's stuff was getting, Danielle was getting really busy with tours and stuff. Shakiri Peters was off doing stuff. And I thought, well, it's not fair on either party really. You know, I had to make the decision. So I started working with Danielle, you know, with Carl, with Carl's blessing. Yes. You know, be, you know we're still, still good friends. Which is fantastic. Still so all then... three of us are all good friends. Yeah. Well, that, that's mm. even better, actually. So then the great 80s, kind of mm. the mid-80s period where there was so much kind of stuff coming out. Mm. Did you feel part of any kind of scene at that stage? Um, I think we always felt we were... It's difficult to say, really. I, I, we'd, we'd, because we'd all done the experimental stuff. We, we thought that, you know, the next big experiment was trying to be pop, you know. As did people like Cabaret Voltaire were trying to do dance music, weren't they? Stuff like that. People have been on that side and thought, well, you know, the next experiment is to see how, you know, how music, how pop music works. You know? Yes. Um, but of course, not being great natural born musicians, I'd say, um, speak at least for myself, um, it would never come out the way you thought it would do in fact that was quite a, a interesting writing technique danielle and i used to have because we'd say okay let's do a track that sounds like led zeppelin and of course it would never sound like led zeppelin um it would sound like something completely different but that was a really nice way of um tricking things off eventually yeah. as we got better at doing stuff it was a bit dangerous because you say let's do something like led zeppelin it would sound like led zeppelin well not quite but yeah, yeah. and did yeah. you feel slightly because i because a lot of the bands i've interviewed have all been mm. on you know they've had the john bill kind of mm. i suppose blessing and and i realize now that mm. which i didn't realize there was only a few gatekeepers mm. in our wonderful society back yeah. in the 80s but obviously it was kind of a big thing so like you had the music papers and things like the yeah. enemy had enormous circulation then you had Men yeah. maker and sounds and record mirror then you had John Peel and probably Janice Long. And then you had yeah. Daytime Radio, which is just a weird place to go. So did you, mm. I mean, and and then you had things in the 80s like Red Wedge, that whole mm. uh, Socialist Workers Party yeah. and, and, and that. So I just, just thinking that some bands, you know, just because they either got the blessing from a music mm. paper or a journal or, yeah. or a radio station would sort of get that that sort of, Exposure. I just wondered how yeah. you managed to sort of deal with that period. Yeah, I think um, 
with Chocolate Peters, it, um, I don't, uh, Peel was never, uh, John Peel was never a supporter. In fact, I, um, when the first single came out, I Blood Brother B, um, I think his producer, John, uh, John Waters, went on the show and said that they were going to refuse to play it. And it's because they thought we were trying to be, um, they thought we were trying to do a Frankie Goes to Hollywood, um, if you like, with a single that might get banned, uh, which we weren't doing at all. I mean, that's just their small-minded thinking, I think. Um, yes. Um, so I don't, I don't think Peel ever played the Lemon Kittens. He, he, I think he played Chocolate Peters once. And... Um, you know, it definitely didn't have an interest in Danielle stuff. So um, we never had him as a champion. I think with Danielle, you had people like Janice Lawton would be playing stuff. Um, yeah. And with some of the singles, you know, we did get, I think, first sing, uh, the first single I worked with Danielle on um, was Bad Miss M. No, Yummy Yummy Man was first. But then we did Bad Miss M, um, which um, it did... You know, that was anti an anti-Thatcher song. And funnily enough, you know, I remember getting up one morning, switched on the radio, and um, they were playing it on the, uh, the breakfast show on Radio 1. So um, that was a bit odd. You know, well, yes. all, of a, all of a sudden we're being played on the radio and have that actually li listen to the lyrics. You know, we'll all have a party when you're gone, desecrate your grave and sing this song. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Yes. So when you were doing Jesus Jesus Egg that way. Yeah. Can yeah. you remember much about the process and, and so sort of how quick it was? Yeah. Yeah. Well um it was all uh, we'd always recorded stuff at home. I mean we, eventually we'd start going to studios to, to mix it. But we'd take, you know, uh, the stuff or, or maybe replace parts or stick drums on and things like that. Um and um but Daniel had I'd always recorded at home, and Daniel had always had a four track reel to reel, um, which she'd started doing her solo stuff on. And by the time of Jesus said, I think we were still on the four track. Um, and the funny thing is, of course, she could get in, she could get interviews out of that because it would be, isn't she weird? She records at home, whereas nowadays, I think it'd be more a case, aren't they weird? They pay money to go into a studio. Um, yeah. So it was considered quite idiosyncratic, and there were loads of interviews and what have you based around the fact that stuff was recorded at home, um, which yeah. was um, quite, quite. Um, I suppose quite yes, a thing. I suppose shows how things change, you know. Um, but yeah, so and we were doing tape loops as well, you know, because you know I'd have loved a sampler, but um, uh, you know they were well, an emulator was about ten grand, I think. So um, we'd just do tape loops. You know, you'd get a, a piece of music, a drum beat you like from a record, uh, record it onto tape, loop it around a pencil and lay it down on one of the tracks of the full track. Yeah. So and that was our form of sampling. And you were on the awesome record label, which I know had, I think it was, was it the Mekons on there or John Langford? Um, I think, I, well, that was run by Falcon, Falcon Stewart. Um who had been the manager of X-Ray Specs, and um, he, um, he 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 started. He became Danielle's manager, and um, then released um, the albums as well and the records through his own label, which I think he started up originally just to put out Danielle's stuff. Yes, um, I think eventually he got other. I think he got what was it the um, oh. Uh, what was that band with Dr. Robert in? Oh, the uh, Blow Monkeys. The Blow Monkeys, yeah. He had the Blow Monkeys, and I think he had something called Space Boy. Um, because he was old school um, punk rock management, he was always after some Sunday paper sensations. So he, got, he signed up that Ever Wild Child Ridley as well. I don't know if you remember her. She was one of those first sort of... Um, it girls, you know, run, running wild in Soho parties and whatnot. Nice. And, um, <laughs> that must have ended well. We we weren't involved. No. But um, I think, you know, um, those, um, a lot of those old punk rock managers, you know, it's kind of a small, small world thinking in a way. They just wanted to get into the news of the world with their act. 
you know, yes. by something outrageous. Um, but um, and he also had classics nouveau as well. He managed them anyway; they weren't on his label. Blimey, um, how interesting! Yeah, but uh, he's, he he died a while ago, Falcon. Um, but um, yeah, he's um, yeah. Inter interesting person. Interesting person. You look him up. You know, it's there's a thing about him on Wikipedia. No. Uh, yeah. So when you well, were then sort of as the eighties were trucking on and everyone yeah. had got very excited then by there was definitely a lot of indie pop because the Smiths yeah. were sort of mm -hmm. kind of getting onto the you know into the charts and top yeah. top of the pops and there was also all the other kind of guitar bass bands and people like the Wolf yeah. and June Brides and yeah yeah no so then when you were sort of recording the next album in Inky Blotters which was eighty seven yeah. yeah. Which is one of the best years of music. Did you were you sort of conscious of what you were going to try and sound like? Um, I think, yeah. Again, we were still doing that thing of. Um, I think you know it's stuff that just came naturally. Like you know, you'd go, well, that's a good loop, tape loop you could get off of a record or something, um, some old blues record or whatever. Slow it down a bit, and um, um, it, things grew from grew from the ground up. So it's not like we were sitting there going, "Hey, let's let's do a, you know, let's do a dance track, or let's do this or that." Although there were a couple of those, I think it was more a case of like we say, "Well, this is good. This could start sounding like the B52s, or this could start sounding like Prince, or something like that." You know? Yes. Um, so if if something took that turn, you'd go with it. But we weren't actually sitting there plotting things out from the begin, you know, from the ground up. Yeah, because because um, it, it was it because then. You did two year, two albums in two years, and you must yeah. have been doing touring and stuff like that. Yeah. So were you just literally twenty four seven, you know, onto the onto the you know Danielle and and yourself releasing yeah. music? I mean, was it kind of just that sort of focus? Were you? Bit uh, I think I think it was always the focus. Yeah. I mean, we were living together, and um, you know, so we had the recording gear at home. Are you there still? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. Yeah, yeah. sorry, so it's a funny sort of noise gate thing, you know. Um, so we had the recording gear at home so we could um, work on stuff, you know, as it needed to be done and, um, or, uh, you know, when we wanted to do it. Um, yes. So that was great. And um, you, were, you were saying about how, um, you know, influenced by the people we were. I mean, we were, obviously we weren't living in a bubble. And also with the um, radio, um, it wasn't so much the Peel thing. We did always get on with the press, though. Um, Danielle was great at interviews, still is. And, um, she, you know, we got friends with a lot of journalists, music journalists, you know, and had quite a few singles of the week. Not because we were friends, I hasten to add. That came later. But, um, we, you know, quite a lot of stuff would be single of the week in, you know, Melody Maker or Sounds or what have you. Um, so that, that was... Um, good although we didn't get so much of the radio exposure yes um and through working in studios and touring and that you'd meet loads of other bands as well you know i mean like at greenhouse studios where we used to record the the wonder stuff were there a lot um and you know everybody would pop in and see each other you know the darling buds and all that you know those bands great indie pop yeah. Yes, yeah. So we weren't in a bubble, is what I'm yeah. going to say. You know, and like, um, you know, on tour we bumped into the Young Gods, you know, Swiss industrial oh, band. Yes. Yeah, and it was funny because they came to a gig and said, "Oh, come to our place after." We didn't, yeah, didn't know who they were. Just you know, nice guys, and we went round their house. They go, "Oh, we've got a track we, we're going to put out," and they played on Voye, their first single, and it's like our jaws dropped. <laughs> yes, it was so good and so new and so fresh. Um, yes, um, I, I remember seeing them mm. once. It was probably at one of those gigs like Yulo, Yulo? yeah, in London, yeah. and Silverfish yeah. were supporting. Was, oh, yeah, Leslie. Um, yeah, that was quite yeah. extraordinary. And uh, yeah, they did a song called September, which I think is is it a Jacques Brel song? Actually? Oh, yeah, September song. Yeah, which was, yeah. and they're yeah. still and they're still doing it, which is still going. Oh, yeah, and he's a great yeah. singer. Yeah, but, um, Amazing. Yeah, so. We're, we're good friends with the young gods. Yes. And, uh, you know, Big Black as well, you know, we're in Germany. We played a few gigs with them. And they were great, really nice. It's funny, you know, everyone thinks Steve Albin is this horrible, scary, spiky person. But they were perfectly charming with us, you know. Mm -hmm. 
I think he likes cats. Anyone who likes cats is ah. Oh, well, there you go. That that's <laughs> it then. You know, I mean, he, he, he met two. It it obviously met two of the biggest cat lovers going at the time. <laughs> yes, I know this is true. But can you can you remember then the the two singles that came out around that or three? There was yeah. Cat House. Which yes, is, yeah. is quite amazing. And White Knuckle Ride, which is also oh, yeah. quite. But yeah. what, so tell us about Cat House. Right when that started off, it was like um, a, a rhythm on. Daniel had a TR808 drum machine, which he'd used on the first, well, on Lemon Kitten stuff, um, and then on the first album a lot. And um, so we just got rhythm going on that, um, played a riff along to it, thought, oh, you know, something with this. What I used to do at the time was um, play the riffs in different keys on um, different tracks on the multi-track, because by then I think we'd gone up to, I think it was other app. Could have been the 16 track by then. Um, and then I'd, I'd go out for a, for the day and Daniel would sit there and punch in between the different riffs doing a composite piece. In other words, the key changes and what have you. Yeah. And um, fitting um, lyrics and melody around it. Um, and that's how that one happened. And, and, remember, when, and I, when you recorded it or when you mm. heard it, did you think, this is this is our ace of spades. This is the this is, <laughs> this, the is time, this is the our time. this is pop perfection. You know what? I mean, I all I know is like you know having so much energy when we were working on stuff at that time, and we've just got the sampler as well. There's loads of samples being chucked in there, um, and just working every bit of it to as far as we could, uh, which was a great feeling. Um, to have that enthusiasm and that energy to do that, uh, just keep on going. Oh, I've got another idea. Why don't we do this? And why don't we do that? You know, some of the samples. There's some funny noises going on in there, and a lot of it is like the guitars being sped up umpteen times and overlaid as chords over stuff on the chorus. Yes, um, and um, things like that. We just really worked that one. Um, as as you know, in the eighties, a lot of pop stuff you know they 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 got trumpet stabs and everything filling every corner of a piece haven't they you know um and it was a bit like us doing that kind of thing um but yeah yeah i think when we'd done it we thought phew that's a good one you know because uh doing stuff yourself a lot of the time sometimes you'd be really pleased with something and then you'd hear it on the radio next to something by trevor horn and it's been uh okay then <laughs> time to do a remix on that one yes <laughs> But no, um, no we're really um, pleased with it. Yeah, I was just going to say, that, I don't know, did he I don't know, re-record or sort of remix some of the music he did in the 80s, taking out the kind of Trevor Horn stuff? And David Bowie, I mean, obviously he'd passed away by then, but they, yeah. they had sort of remixed some of his kind of 80s albums after Let's Dance, where they yeah. took out the 80s production because that was quite off-putting. And um it, it almost sounds overwhelming. Yeah, it was kind of so over. It was so yeah. It was kind of strange. The artist who had been, I suppose, on it the previous decade didn't seem mm. to know how to manoeuvre through the eighties. I wonder if that's the same with a lot of people that they have their zeitgeist moment in a period and then they sort of suddenly feel a little bit like they're going to start copying rather than sort of being that confident with what I'm they're doing. I'm sure that's the case. You know, you people run out of steam. I mean, like we were talking about T-Rex earlier, you know, and I mean, Mark Bolan, as much as I love his stuff, you know, from his his um, uh, heyday, um, I think it was, I think it was a talent that didn't spread too far, you know. I think he'd <laughs> run out of ideas by about 74, really. Yeah. And as great as it was, you know, he'd had his time and he'd had his hits. Um, which were great and you can't knock it for them you know no but um it's like someone like bowie you know could keep on going as you know changing stuff you know you know i mean like, like i don't think bowling would have come up with an album like low no you know, you know um, i think low and, is that low is such an unusual album to have brought out so oh yeah amazing low heroes wasn't so keen on lodger but then um Ashes, um, ashes to Ashes, great album. Yeah, you know. amazing. So, because yeah. one thing that a lot of people experienced during the eighties is that that sort of as as the decade went on towards mm. the end, the, you know, often getting exhausted by the you know the fifth year and the second album, plus yeah. boring with each other, yeah. and sort of the lack of money and and sort of not 
realizing the business, you know, the the, the money yeah. from the business wasn't going terribly well. And the other thing that sort of knocked a lot of bands out was the kind of change of the, I suppose it was the drug scene and dance scene. So it was the ecstasy mm. that came along. And unless a lot of those indie bands that I'd mentioned yeah. to certainly do the Stone Roses or Happy Mondays or um, yeah. the Soup Dragons. They they were feeling like actually we're going to just give it a miss now and yeah. yeah. So had so with yeah, and then you had the you know you had ecstasy and and that dance, yeah. and then you had grunge, and then mm. you know it's all very simplistic. Obviously, this kind of narrative. But but did you sort of as, as sort of as you crept into the nineties, did you start feeling a little bit like where do you where do you sort of place yourself in all that? I think I think you know what I think we've we'd probably I mean obviously in all these things I'm only talking for myself and what I perceive Danielle to think so but you know but as far I don't think we probably ever felt like we fitted into any particular thing anyway I mean it might have been you know that certain things we did maybe fitted in with certain parts of that period and obviously you know you're affected by what's around you as well um, but we've been doing stuff for quite a while by then. You know, and we'd also come from, the, you know, the arty experimental side, which was still in us as well. So that was always there. Um, so I don't think um, it was a case of, oh, that's it. That's the end of, I don't know, that's the end of new romantics. We haven't got a job anymore um, yeah. or, you know, it's, uh, anything like that. I, th- I think it was. And also things had been on an upward trajectory as well throughout the 80s as far as say um if you want to call it commercially or you know career wise <laughs> um you know things had been so you know been building all the time yeah. so and you know then right at the end of the 80s we got signed to sire records so was this with the so, was this with the famous it's seymour stein yes yeah yeah famous. i know um, I, I once did an interview with angie bowen she talked a lot about seymour <laughs> stein for various yeah. reasons so yes he yeah. he is quite he's quite the character so the yeah. fourth your fourth album yeah mm. normally it's kind of people are going from i mean it's kind of interesting because you know i don't know if you know norwich that well mm. but you know going from like the art center to a bigger venue to the UEA, you know, which yeah. is something like, I don't know, 300,000, uh, 300, 300 people yeah. to 500 people to 1,000, and then yeah. possibly, you know, do an arena if you're lucky, and then you start going down the other way, unless you break up. But you, yeah. you obviously, you know, were, were still kind of rising, which was, which was amazing. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, you know, throughout the, throughout the 80s, we'd been playing, I suppose, in, in Europe, you know, venues like four, 500, um, people and um, you know towards the end of um, the end of the decade you know we uh, uh, sold out the Astoria in um, you know in, in central London there um, you know and um, then 91 we were touring the state supporting Sisters of Mercy um, and um, and then it was just after that that we stopped doing stuff. So we kind of went out on a high. You know? Yes. So did yeah. you when when you were recording, you know, mm. Blast the Human Flower? Yeah. You had, you had Stephen Street, so that's yeah, quite yeah. the producer. You're yeah. on a major label, and and you also do a cover as well. So yes, was this kind of right? We've got one shot. This has got to work. If if it's gonna, you know, like we've got to sell X amount because there's a lot more business now. Yeah, well, that's probably what the record company was thinking. We were just getting on with things, you know. Um, it was, I mean, I think it was because we thought, well, because there's a budget there now, let's try it with another, with a producer. You know, we'd always done stuff ourselves. So we let's, and also we knew Steve, because, um, I mean, well, shockingly, Peach was the first thing he'd ever produced. Um, our first single, Blood Brother B, um, in, back in 1984, I think. Um, and in fact, Morrissey had that as his um, one of his sing- singles of the year or something like that. So presumably, I think I heard this from Dave Harper, who used to be in Five or Six, um, and he was a he was a PR for Factory Records. But I, 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 presumably, um, it was from Steve producing that record that might have might have made the Smiths go for um, Steve. I don't know. I've never looked into that one. Yeah, uh, um, but you know, um, Steve hadn't produced anything before that, I don't think. Right. Um, and um, so I we'd known him for for years. Um, 
so it's a case that, um, yeah, it's quite funny, actually. It's a funny story. Uh, we're um, uh, in the studio with Steve, uh, recording Blast the Human Flower, and um, Steve spun around on his swivel chair and said to Daniel, um, Daniel, what, you know, what made you decide um, on me as a producer? You know, because you're always doing stuff yourself and that. And Daniel said, well, I really like the production you job did job you did with Shockey the Peters and we love how soon is now and um, Steve said um, John Porter produced that <laughs> yeah. yeah yes but, um, it's one of those moments isn't it <laughs> we've all done it haven't we yeah, it's like... but it's okay because we know Steve and he's a lovely guy and uh, we laughed about it <laughs> yes, I yeah. Know. Yeah. yes I'm a big fan of your work and you go oh god I got it completely wrong <laughs> <laughs> it's probably yeah. the only Smith song not produced by Steve you know. yeah. well I suppose it's a bit like Alan Partridge and like you know what's your favourite album it's like oh the best of like, yes yeah. <laughs> <I'll see. laughs> so then when that album came out did I mean when you were recording it did you think it yeah. was going to be the kind of the last one or was it just see see how it goes no i mean you know sort of like um you know it was you know the beginning of what we thought was an upward project trajectory because um you know i think it was like a three album deal or something like that with sire or something like that but um I, what happened was um we were yeah we were recording it and um we had a 24 track at home at the time um you know just enjoying recording and um uh I think we we didn't have any ideas it would be the last one. Um, I just it was just that um, after that and after we'd done the tours with the sisters and stuff like that, Daniel had a bit of a, a breakdown. Um, not, not triggered by anything to do with music or anything, but just you know she, she wasn't well, and um, so you know put music on hold for a while, um, and you know that just turned into a long hiatus. Yes. And what about yourself? Did you, again, just think, yes, walk away from it all? <laughs> well, of course, it's, it's one of those things of like, you know, obviously health comes first with everything. Um, but uh, it, was, it, was, it was a shame that what we'd been working on for the best part of 10 years, when we'd actually reached the, that peak, you know, it, it, it stopped. But um, in a way, that's better than it just grinding out and going downwards and becoming really depressing. Yes. Well, yeah. So um and, yeah, so that's so left it left it on a high. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And did you continue on doing many music yeah. or me, I um I um did a dance track with Steve actually, Steve Street, because we'd been um uh, on that Blast of Human Flower album, we'd done we'd done various mixes of some of the tracks, you know, sort of like dance mixes of things. Um, Steve and I had worked on it with samplers and stuff. I had an Akai sampler at the time. And um, we we enjoyed working together so much that we actually did start working together. A project called um, KSDS, which is our initials muddled up. Um, and we put out a single. Steve had a label called Foundation at the time. They had the Caretaker race on it amongst others. Um, and um, so we... Um, up, we oh and a band called Bradford as well. Oh yes, uh, I know. Yeah, Bradford. yeah. Well yeah. not not love Bradford, but Bradford. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And um so uh we uh Steve put the single out, but um you know, and that that was that. And um then Carl and I got Shockley Peters back together again and um we did a few albums from about nineteen ninety one, ninety two, up to about ninety seven. Yes. Um and I was working on all the time. I've been working um, on Danielle's stuff and on the Chocolate Peter stuff and that. You'd be doing things like we say samplers, and you'd come up with some sound. You'd be, oh, what's that sound like? Slowed right down and done backwards, like with the other tape recorders I was talking about. And um, so I had loads of. And I thought oh, that sounds good. You know, let's stick it on a DAT for twenty minutes. So I had loads of, for want of a better term, ambient pieces. So yeah, and um, I put that out as a solo project called Arkon, A-R-K-O-N. Um, and um, it was just like electronic instrumental stuff. Um, 
and I'd got to know Lydia Lunch in the mid nineties because I'd done, done a spoken word tour with her, or what she would call illustrated word. Yeah. Um, in as much as I was doing soundscapes behind her, and um, so L- Lydia's on that um, Archon album as well, and um, so I, I did a, I did that with Lydia and um, done a couple of other things with her since then as well, mainly supporting her spoken word work. Yeah, and um, and also uh, my great friend Steve Thrower, who was in Coil, he was. Um, on Scatology, Horse Rotor Beta, or the um, the eighties records. Um, he um, he and I had been working together for a few years, just you know, just recording stuff at home. And um, we got a we put out an album uh, called the band Unikazern, which is um, was the name of Hans Belmer, the artist's partner, and um, she was a a poet and artist and. Um, but we just stuck her first name and her second name together. Um, and that's what we do now. That's what I do now. We're playing Cafe Otto at the end of this month. Oh, right. Yeah. From yeah. from being in dear, sweet little Norwich, which is, you know, nice. Yeah. But I yeah. do sort of get their mailing lists and think, God, you, they do have a lot of amazing things each month. And I know the guy from Beatus, I think Guy. Oh, Jim. Jim, who I interviewed yeah. I think he's playing there very soon. So, oh yeah, yeah. But did you? Well, I mean, the thing about you know the the whole wonderful world that is the music industry yeah. business. Did you manage to sort of keep your publishing and ownership of the music? Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, that uh, throughout the eighties, Daniel, um, the deal with Awesome was that they just had a license for a certain period of time um, for everything for the for publishing and um, for the um, music, for the reproduction, yeah, for the records. And um, I think it was, I don't know, it might have been two years or something like that, or it stopped as soon as they stopped doing, uh, releasing stuff. So all that stuff from the 80s is Danielle's. The only stuff that isn't is the Sire stuff because they obviously paid for the recordings of those, you know. So the Blast of the Fume and Flower one is the only stuff that, Danielle doesn't own herself. And um, we never signed over publishing. I think Warners um, were keen on taking up publishing, but um, we, we we didn't go with it. So we've still got that still. So it's all you know yeah. registered with MCPS and PRS and whatnot. And um, have you managed to sort of keep a... I mean, as a fan, mm. we, we often don't sort of... The reunions often are not, yeah. not not on the top of our list, but uh, yeah. but you kind of hope the members of the band who created it get on well. Do you sort of have a good relationship with Danielle and Carl still? Absolutely. I mean, Dan, I, I went I only went over to Danielle's last Monday actually. Yeah, um, you know, and uh, no, we're all really close still. Yes. You know, um, you know Carl goes and cat sits for Danielle and. <laughs> All that sort of thing, you know. Does it feel like uh, a very strange and long time ago when you were, you know, it was over thirty years now? Does it, does it feel like you were a, a quite a, a different person? Not, yeah. Does it feel? Yeah, like... I think so. Yeah, I mean, everyone, everyone changes. Um, I thought I was quite. I was really quite naive. I start not saying naive. I I didn't have an old head. Let's put it that way. When I was young, you know. Um, but I don't think I'm not saying I made any great mistakes, and I don't regret one thing. You know, I've been, I'm very happy with the way things have turned out. You know, yes, really. You know, because um, all the people I I know now, and you know, friends and people I love, you know, if my life had gone in any other way, they might not be around. And um, I'm very happy with the people I'm surrounded with. Yes, you know. So um, any other way it could have gone, you know, okay, I could have been some sort of like a um, some unlikely, but I could have been, you know, some billionaire living in um, on an island somewhere, um, but not knowing the people I know now, you know, and would I trade that? No, I wouldn't. Yes, yeah. fair yeah. it's fair enough. Mm. Yes, I mean, you know, I mean, it's, um, I suppose it's a bit of a strange one, but my favourite, probably my favourite band of the 80s was dear old The Smiths. Yeah. It's not gone well, has it? 
the legacy. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> oh, God, no, no, definitely it's, not. It's, no. It's, it's just, um, you know, it's just like, oh, God, you know, I don't, any, you know, it could have gone so differently and so well, but, you know, it's like yeah. the magic, yeah. the mystery, it's just not there, is it? It's, oh, it's dear me. What, I mean, it, I, I, what is it that happens to these people? I mean, I... I mean, it, I mean, Johnny Rotten as well. You know? Yes, I know. It's like you just think, okay, and Roger Daltrey and Ringo Starr. Anything? Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And the, <laughs> and the other thing is, these people have, you know, ostensibly, career-wise, at least, lived charmed lives. Yeah. And um, how can they be so cantankerous and, you know? I suppose without going into too but it's quite a weird I tried to watch a documentary on the 60s because I've always been fascinated but it's yeah. strange how conservative a lot of those people have become in their yeah. old age and, you, and so they're talking about their youth in this card we we're all wild and rebellious and you think yes, yeah we definitely were and now we're really conservative and we we would you know we would vote for the far right almost or you know and it's oh, like yeah. and, and live in a gated community and have opinions that even your grandparents would have found a bit odd because they would have been in the war, whereas this generation. Oh, nice. So the Michael Caines and the Roger Daltrey's, yeah. it's a little bit, you know, it's like, actually, I can't watch documentaries when they're, when they're doing yeah. that thing of looking back while being so conservative now, while going on about how rebellious they were back then and thinking, you're kind of missing at a link here. But yeah. um, anyway, it's a bit... I know. It's like, well, it's like, you know, I made it and anyone, if I could make it, anyone could. So why don't they? They don't, they're lazy. <laughs> Buggers, you know, yeah, and just the thinking, and just I mean, many many decades ago now, I was going yeah. to years, but um, we were watching one of those house programs because my partner liked those sort of programs, and Danny yeah. was on it, and it was, oh yes, yeah, and I was, and I really did quite a double take, and was, and I yeah. thought, wow, and what, did you sort of find yourself also sort of going, brilliant, you've done it, you've, yeah, well, don't forget, I lived in one of those houses <laughs> for a while. <laughs> Or a flat, you know, and um, covered in tin foil and um, painted with pink squirrels all over it. And um, so it was nice to see that going mainstream. Yes, <laughs> like, you know. it was fantastic. Uh, yeah, it was great. Yeah, and she won it as well. I was an amateur decorator of the year or something. That's right. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I, I was. Well, I, I we'd gone through a nineties period of using a lot of sort of bright colours and using silver for woodwork. Yeah. Yeah. sexy pink and oranges and all that so it was like when I saw her work I thought oh my god kindred spirit but yes. look, just briefly then what would yeah. you what would you say to an 18 year old self kind of starting out you know and in that in that way of just thinking god what one thing or two things I I would have thought oh yes if that would have been good to be you know the things that you've you've learned not all of it but just those you know, because mostly there aren't a lot, but there's sometimes a few things that you think, oh, yeah, I wished, I wished I'd had that little sort of switch flicked on or I'd been aware yeah. of it. Yeah. I, you know, I really, really, apart from, you know, personal things with, you know, particular friends or something that I'd have liked to have done differently, um, I really, and that's not, it's not smugness, it's not anything like that at all, but... I, I'm actually quite content with how things turned out, um, and I, I've never, I've never had an addictive personality. I've never overindulged in anything. So, I think if anything, I'd probably have said to myself, "Be a bit looser, a bit, a bit looser." You know, <laughs> I've always been a bit, a bit too careful, maybe. You know, which sometimes you think, "Oh, come on," you know, but um. I, I, I think um, I think considering how things have, have turned out, I don't think I'd have done anything any, any differently, yes. really. Yeah, I probably uh, yes. I actually, think. when you say about managing some friendships better, that's probably one mm. thing that I would have um, dealt with a bit better. Yeah, I think maybe certain times I did you know didn't handle things with particular people the best I could. But you know, time passes. You know. Yes. I don't. I'm, I'm not talking about some trail of the dead that I've got. Behind me. It sounds like it, doesn't it? No, but you no, know, yeah, no. I don't know. I, I, I generally, everyone I know, I get on with well. You know. Well, that's brilliant. Right, that you're still you, friends you know. with your um, bandmates. 
Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's a few, it's a few, it's a few, it's a few skeletons back there. Did you? I mean, just oh yeah, just brief. Did you ever play Norwich? Did you ever come in this area? I know we've got the art centre, but I don't. I'm pretty sure. I don't think we did. You know. No, I can't remember, and I just thought. I mean, you know, I don't know. Did you manage to archive? Have you managed to archive much of the stuff as well? Apart from the music, I just wondered if, like, Paul's... Or... Danielle's got an amazing archive, you know. She's got a big house and um, she's got, you know, all the all the magazines, all the newspapers, all the contact sheets, recordings of all the gigs and um, all of the reel-to-reel tapes still. You know, she's still got, like, the two-inch masters for stuff, you know, because, you know, paying for it ourselves... You know, yes. we've got to keep it, you know. Um and um, you know, most of the instruments as well, half of now, which have become collectors items of course, you know. Not not because we play them, but because you know, <laughs> because at the time they were just idiosyncratic things that not many other people are interested in. And, yes. and you know, do you still get people from Japan and Europe sort of I mean you still get a lot of plays on Spotify then I guess you still got yeah. a lot of interest. Yeah, you still hear um that some of the Janice Long sessions get played on Radio Six every now and again. Yeah, um, I've noticed. Yeah, you switch the radio. Oh bloody hell! That sounds that sounds good. Who's that? <laughs> oh, I jest. But um, you know, you um, you know, yeah, it's quite quite funny when you do hear this stuff. But Radio Six, you know, um, keeps it going, doesn't it? Keeps it keeps it going. Great station. Yeah. But um, um, yeah. So you know, it, it's still out there. And, you know, with the power of YouTube and everything like that, I think Cat House has had about 350,000 views, which is all right, you know. It's amazing. Um, yeah, yeah. And um, so there's, you know, it's still out there doing its thing. I know. I think actually just briefly, I mean, I sort of realised that 30, a passing of 30 years seems to give something, a lot of things, a sort of a, a different quality. You know, mm. I know there's been quite a few books out and a few films out and it's like, yes, it's, it didn't feel like it would have been worth it 10, 10 years after you end or 20, but 30 years. And it's some, um, being able to kind of reflect on it and to sort of have a, mm. yeah, just to sort of, I don't know, having that time to sort of be able to yeah. digest it and say, yes, that was a well, good thing. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I mean, it's, it's how, you know, time affects things. Um, you know, I mean, remember going to see like probably Gristle filmmakers co-op and uh, you know um, the YMCA and places like that, and there'd be about oh, well, the filmmakers co-op must be about sixty people there, you know. And um, now I see that um, you know Co- since Cozy's book came out, you know um, that, that went mega, didn't it? It was a bestseller, and um, I think they're talking about film rights for I think the film rights. Are, Yes, I think sold, I've read that yeah. in the last week. Something. Yeah, like that. yeah. That's... So you know, the underground eventually comes overground. It, it seems. You know, to quote the Wombles. Yeah. <laughs> and we're all wombling free. Well, we're not free anymore, but um, we were. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. yeah. Let's not let's not get depressed today. No, let's not. Yeah. Anyway, look, David, yeah. this has been amazing, yeah. and thank you great. for being. Yeah, so great, and thank you for the. Uh, Getting the the connection in the end. That is yes, it. I hope the recording comes it, out. It's yeah, looking good. Okay, look. Okay, well, if, it, if it doesn't, you know, I can always do it again because people always accuse me of repeating myself. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, all that well, playing around with tape loops. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's brilliant. Well, thank you ever so much. I'll tell you when I put it.